Hey, Mark, can you turn that TV down? We're getting ready to record a podcast in here. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, what was that, anyways? Sounded familiar. Uh, I was just watching my favorite Tom Selleck movie. Oh, sweet. Quigley Down Under? No. Oh, then it must have been Runaway. Classic flick. Gene Simmons was amazing as the villain. No. Um, well, those are pretty much the only Tom Selleck movies I've heard of. You've never heard of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, but that's a Harrison Ford movie, not Tom Selleck. What, that guy from Star Wars? Yes. Well, I I guess I always get them confused, but anyway, I'm pretty sure Tom Selleck could have played Indiana Jones. What does that mean? I mean, if things had worked out differently, Tom Selleck might have played Indiana Jones. You're saying it's true that Tom Selleck might have played Indiana Jones? Yeah. Do you have any kind of evidence to back that up? You know what? I do. And maybe you'll find out on today's show. Hey everyone, and welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for winsome people like you. I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. I'm Paco Allen. And I'm Chad Allen. Today, we're going to talk about the concept of possible worlds. Possible worlds are worlds in which things are different from the way they are in our world. For example, a world in which Tom Selleck did, in fact, play Indiana Jones. And we're going to talk about some philosophers who think that those worlds actually exist and why they think that. But first, I want to talk about some concepts in logic. Um, And I guess first, I want to say a little bit about what we sort of think of as classical logic, um, which deals with what are called truth functional propositions. And truth functional propositions are propositions or statements that are either true or false. So if you take the proposition, Harrison Ford played Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, we can say that that statement is either true or false. And we can kind of uh, look out uh, at facts in the world and determine whether or not that statement is true or false. Um, For example, um, I could go to IMDb right now. Uh, and and look up who played uh, the role of Indiana Jones, or I could sit down and watch the movie uh, like Mark was and look at the credits and su- see who played uh, Indiana Jones. And so that's a that statement about who played Indiana Jones in the Raiders of Lost Ark is a is a truth functional statement. So it has a- so, so Socrates wouldn't have had a problem with this. This is you know he could have sat down in front of. Um, ancient Greek Hellenic INDB and, and come to the, exactly the same conclusion. Exactly, right? yeah. He could have formed a perfect uh, syllogism in the form that he was very familiar with and and been very happy with this as a truth functional proposition. Okay, so uh, you guys were just talking about propositions where you can observe things in the world and clearly tell whether those propositions are true or false, like... Uh, Harrison Ford played Indiana Jones and you can watch the movie and see that Harrison Ford is actually playing Indiana Jones, right? Yep. So those are real things that we can say in some way uh, are real and we can check on them or verify them. Either true or false. They're either true or false, right. 
But then there are other kinds of propositions that we can make about things that are not really about whether something is actually true or false, but they're kind of about whether or not something is either possible or impossible. Hypothetical propositions. Right. They're not necessarily true or false in that they can be verified. They're like hypothetical propositions. Are we talking about modal propositions? Yeah. So they're called modal propositions. And modal propositions fall out of a system of logic known as modal logic, uh, which the modern day concepts people use today of modal logic were developed by philosophers like Ruth Barkin Marcus and Saul Kripke in the 1960s, possibly on weed or maybe <laughs> on LSD. Um, and uh, uh, Ruth Marcus was kind of a super genius logician and philosopher uh, who was so smart that she not only developed logical formulas that were named after her, like the Barkin formula, uh, but also developed the converse Barkin formula, uh, which is kind of like creating Superman and Bizarro right. Superman like in one day. Yeah. You know, we haven't, a couple of people have asked us about why we don't talk about more women philosophers on the show. And that's a, a whole topic in and of itself about this sort of like male dominated world of contemporary philosophy. And, you know, that's changed in the last few decades, but, um, we should do a show at some point about Ruth Bark and Marcus because she was an amazing pivotal figure, um, in, in 20th century logic. And she's sometimes overshadowed by this sort of like all of the dudes in this like heavily male dominated field, but her work is sort of very pivotal in a, in a lot of, um, developments in logic and modal logic in particular in the 20th century but anyway do we get to call her rbm because that's when you know you've really made it when you just initials in the philosophy yeah i world. mean we should totally call her that a very winsome woman indeed <laughs> so uh one of one of her contemporaries timothy williamson who's a professor at oxford uh said of her that her quote ideas are not just original and clever and beautiful and fascinating and influential and way ahead of their time but actually, I believe, true, which I think is like a... <laughs> that is an amazing quote. <laughs> a, a really telling quote, because I think you can read a lot of extremely influential and brilliant philosophers' work, and they will reveal new insights and, and issues and, and new kind of paradigms in terms of how you look at an idea or, or think about something. But you still walk away from them and say, well, like there's clear problems with those ideas and even right. they recognize those ideas yeah. and maybe they even propose uh, paradoxes or propose uh, riddles uh, that would solve the idea that they're trying to come to grips with. But they don't themselves ever find a solution to that problem in their lifetime. So I think it's it's interesting that he kind of finishes that thought about her with um you know, this kind of steadfast belief that her thinking was true. You know, and I think that's, um, without getting too much into the work of RBM, I think that that, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Like the work that she did was sort of foundational to the work of a lot of other philosophers. Um, and that subsequent work is sort of more, um, you know, kind of, uh, controversial or, or widely debated, but her, the, the foundations that she created in modal logic kind of sort of underpin the whole debate or a whole series of debates, um, regardless of which side you're on. 
but let's not get into the technicalities of modal logic right now. Um, right. Right. So the basic basic concept of uh, modal logic goes something like this. So uh, here's a version of a modal proposition. Tom Selleck could have played Indiana Jones. Yep. So this seems possible. Tom Selleck was an action star at the same time. He was super popular. He had this hit show Magnum P.I. on TV and was actually considered for the role. Lucas had just done Star Wars with Harrison Ford. He didn't want him to become, quote unquote, his De Niro. Uh, Selleck was um, Spielberg's first choice. So Spielberg and Lucas were kind of the co-creators of Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Selleck was Lucas's first choice. Spielberg really wanted Ford. Um, Lucas didn't want to do Ford because he had been in his first two movies. He was right. in Star Wars and uh, American Graffiti. Um, there were a bunch of screen tests that they did with Selleck, who was awesome. You can see those online or on DVD oh, really? extras. I didn't know you could but, see the screen tests. Oh, yeah. He did a bunch of screen tests. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I, I, def- I, I definitely recommend the... Um, it's referred to as the ultimate commentary on Raiders of the Lost Ark, a fan-made movie that's on... Uh, it's actually a staff pick on Vimeo, uh, and the link will be in the show notes, and they have extensive... Um, cuts of of scenes being acted out, uh, just shot on on video camera for the purpose of uh, the screen test, where uh, Tom Selleck is is absolutely luminous. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Although I will say that it it's almost whole cloth cut from the DVD extras. Like it's it's mm-hmm. not that much of a singular fan creation, but. Uh, but CBS wouldn't let Selleck out of his Magnum PI shooting schedule, uh, which in the end becomes like kind of a, a really jerk move because they didn't actually start shooting that season of Magnum PI until after they had wrapped shooting on Raiders. Ugh. And some of the shooting for Raiders happened um, in Hawaii where Tom Selleck was actually oh, like, hanging out <laughs> waiting for Magnum PI to shoot. That sucks. And then in the end, they even did an episode on Magnum PI called Legend of the Lost Art, where they parodied Raiders, like complete with Magnum in a fedora and, with a whip and like a booby trap sequence and like all these other Indiana Jones references. So, like, c- clearly there were a lot of people who were pushing for Tom Selleck to be in that role, but. Uh, in the end, like after CBS wouldn't let Tom Selleck go for that role, Spielberg talked Lucas into bringing Ford back and doing another movie with him. But anyways, we could propose that Tom Selleck could have played Indiana Jones. So that's one modal proposition. Yep. Hit me with another one. Another modal proposition would be Humphrey Bogart could have played Indiana Jones. Hmm. And, you know, this seems impossible. You know, Humphrey Bogart died in 1959, 23 years before the filming began on Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, like, maybe if Humphrey Bogart lived really long and hadn't died in <laughs> right. 1959, he could yeah. have played Indiana Jones at the like age a of really 81. weird old Indiana Jones. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, a really old Indi- version of Indiana Jones. Like, the eight, that's not much older than when Harrison Ford played Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Uh, but anyways like still haven't seen it humphrey bogart good on you humphrey bogart playing indiana jones kind of seems impossible at least relative to tom Selleck playing indiana jones right who 
screen tested for it and was the producer's first choice for it, right? Those are two different modal propositions. We can say those two things. We can say Tom Selleck could have played Indiana Jones. We can say Humphrey Bogart could have played Indiana Jones. So how do we determine the quote-unquote truth value of those statements? Right. Right? Like we don't have the IMDB for who could have played Indiana Jones. Right. We can't watch the DVD extra that shows... (laughs) Humphrey Bogart's screen tests. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Or like the... The other world where Humphrey Bogart did play Indiana Jones, right? right? Like, like those things don't exist. So I can make those statements and they seem like statements that are, you know, logical statements that are constructed of words in a way that makes sense. But like, how do we determine whether or not they're true in the same way that we determine that the statement Harrison Ford played Indiana Jones is true? Well, funny you should mention the quote-unquote other world in which uh, Humphrey Bogart played Indiana Jones, because that's actually the way that philosophers for the last 50 or 60 years have largely thought about how to evaluate these kinds of modal propositions. And, And that's by referring to this concept of what's known as possible worlds. And so from sort of a technical perspective, a possible world is a world that's like ours in a lot of ways, but also different in in sometimes important ways. You know, just sort of in common parlance, we might say there's a possible world in which Tom Selleck played Indiana Jones and there's a possible world in which Humphrey Bogart played Indiana Jones. And like on the face of it, our intuition seems to be yeah, there, there's a possible world in which Tom Selleck played Indiana Jones, but eh, possible world in which Humphrey Bogart played Indiana Jones seems less likely. Also, uh, uh, this just in, um, Humphrey Bogart died at the age of 57. The movie uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull uh, starring Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford was uh, 66, nine years older than uh, the age that Humphrey Bogart died in. Yeah, what I was saying was, though, that if Humphrey Bogart had lived 23 years more... He would have been 80-something, which is kind of what Harrison Ford looked like in Kingdom of the Crystal right. Skull. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Agree. So this so this idea of possible worlds um, goes all the way back to uh, Gottfried Leibniz, um, who's sort of credited with introducing the concept uh, in his essay from 1710 called, it's got, a, it's got a long name, Essays on the Goodness of God, the Freedom of Man, and the Origin of Evil. Yeah, and, and Leibniz sort of famously argued that our world was, quote-unquote, the best of all possible worlds, and this was part of his solution to the problem of evil. Uh, also famously parodied uh, by Voltaire um, in in his book Candide. Uh, and, and, but, but, but nonetheless, Leibniz's notion of possible worlds is sort of pretty different from how we use the term in in contemporary philosophy, but worth noting that he's sort of like the the notion of possible worlds kinds of kind of like traces back to Leibniz. Right. I mean, he was using it more like we were referring to it earlier in the show, like a a hypothetical world, right? Like kind of a right a world you could imagine, but wasn't as real as the world we exist in. And I guess also when we say the world we exist in, we mean the universe we exist in, not just like yeah, the not planet just Earth. planet Earth, yeah. So the, so the contemporary usage of the notion of possible worlds um, was pioneered by Saul Kripke, who we, who we already mentioned briefly, and another philosopher, David Lewis, uh, in the 1960s. 
And fundamentally, what they're saying is that in order to evaluate the truth value of the statement, Tom Selleck might have played Indiana Jones. What you need to do is think about whether there's a possible world in which Tom Selleck actually did play Indiana Jones. And that all it means to say Tom Selleck might have played Indiana Jones is to say it's true in some other possible world that Tom Selleck played Indiana Jones. And so the, the sort of like trick here is that you can take these modal statements that are about possibility and impossibility or counterfactuals like Tom Selleck could have played Indiana Jones, and you can turn those into truth functional propositions just by saying it's true in some other possible world that Tom Selleck played Indiana Jones. So that when I that phrasing, you notice that nowhere did I say Tom Selleck might have or Tom Selleck could have. I'm saying there's a possible world in which Tom Selleck did play Indiana Jones. And so now right. we've kind of like worked our way back to having a truth functional proposition about Tom Selleck's role as Indiana Jones. Right. And these possible worlds aren't... The word possible, I think, might trip you up a bit in understanding what someone like David Lewis means by a possible world. When he describes the possible world where Tom Selleck played Indiana Jones, he's talking about a world that's as real as our world, a universe that's as real as our universe, where Tom Selleck did play Indiana Jones. It's not a hypothetical world. It's not an idea about a world where that happened. It's not your imagining of a different version of our world where that happened. It's another world or another universe that's as real as ours. And there are an infinite number of these. And from my understanding of it, that's kind of a requirement in order to be able to evaluate these type of propositions in the same way that you can evaluate truth propositions where you can actually look at evidence to determine whether or not they're true or not. It's like in order for us to be able to evaluate both of these types of propositions, Harrison Ford played Indiana Jones and Tom Selleck might have played Indiana Jones in order to evaluate those in the same way. You either have to come up with two different ways to evaluate those things, which is strange, or you have to accept that possible worlds are real. Yeah, and I think that's where the the, the phrase uh, modal in the modal propositions come in. You you switch into another mode to make those evaluations, like you're playing a video game and you flick into another mode so you can do something that is impossible um, otherwise. So, so you uh, you have um, a capability that you didn't have before. Um, I think that's a great great way of of tackling it. Um, uh, and and uh, keen-eared listeners may also be thinking about topics such as um, the multiverse or, or, or multiple dimensions. And, and, and to be clear, this idea of possible worlds is not to be confused with multiverses, not to be confused with alternate uh, realities or dimensions that impinge or could be detected on our world. These are completely separate, independent uh, states of being, which um, are, are totally uh, isolated and independent from, from our world altogether. So what does this really mean when we say um, there are, there's a possible world in which Tom Selleck played in Indiana Jones? Well, the American philosopher David Lewis, um, in his books uh, Counterfactuals, or a uh, famous one you may have heard of, On the Plurality of Worlds uh, from 1986, he recommended that we should think about these worlds as, as actual real worlds, like, like Paco says. And they are they're independent and not um, 
uh, as opposed to the, the multiverse theory, not causally linked to ours. So they're, they're totally uh, separate. Um, that gives us that platform to be able to, you know, apply these uh, these rules of logic and these new these new ways of evaluating analytical um, uh, thought experiments in the way that we do. Uh, we should believe uh, they exist because either the universe is full of possible worlds and we can understand the truth model statements uh, by using our existing notion of true and false by referencing these worlds, or we have to introduce uh, these new concepts of possible and improbable and uh, take them as a fundamental concepts. Um, the same way we treat true or false. So the the way I I always think about this is um, in early mathematics um, when uh, we had very basic integer math as a as a civilization, and we didn't have the concept of of negative numbers. That was a uh, that was a concept that could have solved a lot of uh, equations, but we didn't have the concept of of counting how many of nothing. Could you could you evaluate in relation to the quantity of something if you were just counting physical objects? And the invention of negative numbers almost snapped into another mode of being able to do basic arithmetic that was able to give you an answer that you could actually express in a formal way. I think of it like ultimate Spider-Man could never come in contact with Silver Age Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not been reading the Spider-Verse? <laughs> Uh, the Ooh, most recent no. by Mark Sanders. Have you been, Mark, have you been reading the Wikipedia page on the Spider-Verse? <laughs> yes, I have been reading the Wikipedia page on the Spider-Verse where all possible Spider-Men come together and interact uh, all in one in one timeline. Did you say Spider-Men or Spider-Men? <laughs> I said Spider-Men, which I guess is... <laughs> Spider-Mans? How, how is the plural defined? <laughs> no, it's super charming. I love the way you talk. <laughs> in in the story, um, uh, uh, Spider Man and his super friends—that um, cartoon from the eighties where he, uh, Spider Man, Peter Parker, is roommates with Firestar and Iceman—they're all oh, yeah. brutally murdered oh. uh, very early on in the first book. What? Yeah. Did someone at least take over his like uh, sweet pad where he pushed a button and like his dorm room or whatever turned into like a super sweet science lab? The Wikipedia page <laughs> did not have details on that. Yeah. Okay. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> Mark, is this on your list of favorite Wikipedia pages? So, are we? Do we need to vote on whether Ultimate Spider-Man could meet Silver Age Spider-Man? No, no, we okay. don't. Here's what we need to vote on: um, we need to vote on whether or not Tom Selleck would have been a better Indiana Jones than Harrison Ford. Okay, let's do that real quick. Oh Jesus! Uh, no, Mark. Um, I think he could have applied some some authentic musky charm. I would like to have given him a shot. I mean, I'd like to see it, but I can't say it better. Yeah, pr- yes, yeah. I don't think he would have been better, but I would have liked to have seen it, like the alternate uh, Marty McFly uh, movie that. Right. Got. Okay, I'm going to vote no. Also, so I think there's a uh, agreement around the table that that Harrison Ford was the right choice. Did you know that mm-hmm. Sean, not- Sean Young also screen tested for and almost got the role of Marion? What? Yes, it was almost Magnum P.I. and Sean Young from Blade Runner. <laughs> or- also in the uh, the, the video uh, uh, screen tests. Yeah, they're to- they, they screen test together. It's awesome. Oh, you're kidding me. That is amazing. But what if it had been Harrison Ford and Sean yeah, Young? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's why Sean Young was there was because... It was like, I want Harrison Ford. Meh, meh, meh. You can't have him because I did two movies with him. And he's like, give me Sean Young because he was in another movie with Harrison Ford. 
Could you tell my <laughs> right. Could you tell my George Lucas I mean, okay, and Steven Spielberg impersonation? We won the fortieth movie we can. Yeah, those were <laughs> amazing. I mean, truly amazing. <laughs> what are we voting on? Uh, that that we're not voting. <laughs> I mean, we did vote on. Tom Selleck as her as I almost said Tom. <laughs> yeah, Selleck no, I think Harrison Tom Selleck. Ford. Tom Selleck is should play Harrison Ford in, in the which biopic. Tom Selleck was Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> no, so what we really need to vote on is whether or not these possible worlds have to actually exist as real things in order for us to interpret modal statements like Tom Selleck could have played Indiana Jones. Go. I say no. Okay. Why? I'm going to Bertrand Russell <laughs> this and say the language sucks. Okay. So this is what David Lewis would say to your vote. He would say, okay, that's great. You don't have to have all of these crazy, uh, like, infinite number of possible worlds. But now you, that means that your notions of possibility and impossibility or the way that you talk about counterfactuals like those words like might and could have those have to now have definitions they have to be sort of like fundamental concepts in the way that truth and falseness are fundamental concepts and so now you may have gotten rid of all of those many many possible worlds but now you have to introduce a couple of really fundamental concepts um you know, like maybe and could and possibility and impossibility. So you might think that you've sort of reduced the complexity of language, but that's not true because now you've got these other concepts you have to introduce. Mark, what's your vote? Um, I say uh, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> uh, and the responsibility of uh, uh, delivering an argument that uh, relies on unprovable, unreachable worlds is a great way to prolong your funding uh, while at university. <laughs> so I would have to say that sounds ideal. Let's let's go with that. Wow, yeah, David Lewis is like, no, I. You know what? I that is a really really good point because you like, you know, like the best way for David Lewis to keep his job was to keep writing crazy stuff about how all of these possible worlds had to actually exist. And like once that idea gets traction as like a controversial topic, then yeah, he's going to keep getting book deals and he's going to get tenure. And like, I, I do think that that's like a non-trivial part of this. If you want to look at it from a history of ideas perspective, if you're out there, David Lewis, we're calling you out. Yeah. Tweet to the show, write to the show, <laughs> stand up, be a man, right. defend yep. your possible world's concept. So I'm going to defend it for him a little bit because I think that, you know, what's interesting about his argument is he's saying, look, if you want to actually rely on this concept of possible worlds, then you need to sort of bite the bullet and own up to the fact that you're talking about something real. And by the way, like he, it's not that he's the only one using the notion of possible worlds to explain modal logic. Everyone who's talking about modal logic in 20th century, in the back half of the 20th century is relying on the notion of possible worlds. And other philosophers like Quine, for example, say that 
possible worlds are just collections of sentences and we can't evaluate the truth value of those sentences. And Lewis says, no, like the, the easiest way to explain our reliance on this concept of possible worlds is that they actually exist. And and I think that there's something to that, you know, he like, so, you know, there are analogies, for example, to the notion that like, hey, you know, we have this concept of real numbers and imaginary numbers that we rely on to like make um, certain assertions in mathematics. And the best way, like what we should do is assume that the, that those numbers are real things and not just concepts that we made up because that's the best way to explain the fact that we can use them to solve problems in mathematics. And so he's sort of saying a similar thing, which is the most straightforward explanation for why possible worlds help us understand modal claims is that they actually exist. And so, I don't know, I think there's like some power in that argument. So I guess for the purposes of this particular vote, even though this runs counter to my sort of general kind of pragmatic inclinations, I'm going to say that I think Lewis is onto something here and that if you're going to rely on a concept to explain something, then you should probably fully commit to that, to that set of, to that concept that you're, that you're assigning so much explanatory power to. I just think it's one of the greatest injustices that existence could ever create to have a world exist where Tom Selleck plays Indiana Jones and I have zero access to that world. <laughs> it's not a parallel universe that I can find some way into no. or yeah. or peek into. Like time travel or wormhole or any of that stuff's not going to get you there. It's yeah. another real world where Tom Selleck actually played Indiana Jones and I have zero access to it. Right, but maybe as consolation, you know that there is a Paco in that other possible world who's enjoying the Tom Selleck version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hate that guy. <laughs> okay, I think we have our votes. You know what? You know what? <sighs> to that to that Paco, screw yeah. you, because you don't get to see the Harrison uh -huh. Ford version. Yeah. Do you think there's a possible world in which both versions were made? God damn, there is. No, because they're it's, infinite. Yeah. No, there probably is, yeah. No, there definitely is, because they're infinite. Yeah. There's a version, and then there's a version where Tom Selleck and Harrison Ford both play Indiana Jones in the same movie, somehow. Right. And yeah, then there's a world where Tom Cruise <laughs> and Harrison Ford... Are, Wait, Tom are, Cruise or, or Tom Selleck? Yeah, no, nope, yeah, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, Tom Selleck, and Harrison Ford are all actually Indiana Jones. There's infinite, uh, <laughs> there's infinite worlds. Okay, there are, but I, <laughs> but it, but there are, there are infinite worlds, but, but it's, I think, important to um, keep in mind that the worlds do help us define what's possible and not possible and that there are boundaries on that. And the example that's usually given to illustrate this is the, is the fact that um, in every possible world that in all of the infinite possible worlds, water is always H2O. Yep. And in one of those worlds, that. water's H2O, and Tom Cruise, Tom Selleck, and Harrison Ford all change their name to Indiana Jones and become uh -huh. adventuring archaeologists. Uh -huh. you, you know they okay. call the dog Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think it was Spielberg's dog was actually named Indiana. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. One of their what Spielberg or Lucas had a dog named Indiana, which is where that name and comes from. And that's how they got the name. Yeah. yeah. And where the yeah. joke comes from in the third one. I'm pretty sure we're at the mid show break. Yes, we definitely <laughs> are. I think we passed right. it very very briefly over our <laughs> shoulder a little while ago. To the mid show break. So, Mark, I know we agreed you could read the show opening because I lost our bet in the last episode about your race with the tortoise. But I also noticed that when you read that intro, you swapped out handsome for winsome in the tagline, which is usually a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. But you said winsome people like you. And I'm trying to figure out why you did that. Ah, you didn't read uh, our show notes for this episode, I see. Um, uh, A a couple of episodes ago, uh, we asked listeners how they felt about our tagline. Yep. Uh, uh, The uh, the handsome people like you reference. And if they had any alternative suggestions. Did they? We did get a few uh, responses from uh, eagle-eared and... uh, uh, well, well regarded uh, listeners, uh, we love you all. Uh-huh. And uh, my favorite one came in via Twitter, uh, and her handle is at Esmertina. Is that how I'd pronounce it, Chad? How would you How would you say that? Uh, I would say at Esmertina. It doesn't have a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> Esmertina. <laughs> well, she uh, suggested um, the the adjective of winsome in place of handsome. Uh, winsome means uh, attractive or appealing. Uh, in appearance or character and has nothing to do with Kate Winslet, uh, I found out after Googling it. Um, Like handsome, but it can be applied to both men and women. Um, But unlike handsome, it's more often used to describe women than men. But I find it uh, uh, practical in in any situation. How how do you guys feel about that? I like winsome. It's a word that that I didn't know, and I like the sound of it. I don't know if it will turn into the tagline for the show. I think... If other listeners have contenders for handsome and now winsome, I think we'd love to hear them. And we'll we'll see what the tagline is for next week's show. If you still have thoughts or ideas, please uh, email or, or tweet us and we'd, we'd love to hear what you uh, would like to come up with. So do you guys want to hear some listener mail? Do we? I don't know. Do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Uh so we have here a question from the Joey from Brownsville, Kentucky. Um and Joey wants to know is there such a thing as luck and what is it we call luck? Uh I have something to say about this. Okay. But I want to I I don't, I don't want to just like, you know, take over. Well, I mean, I was going to say I think it really depends on what your definition of luck is or what the definition of luck is. If you're going to have a conversation about, do we think it exists and and what it is, then it really kind of comes down to what the definition of luck is, which it sounds like you have one or two or three or four of those definitions. It's your lucky day, my friend. So I coincidentally have sort of thought about this question a fair bit, even before uh, Joey wrote to us about it. The Joey. The Joey uh, from Brownsville, Kentucky. I have sort of a personal definitional framework for talking about different kinds of luck, and I'm going to run it by you guys, and you can tell me what you think. So I think there are three different kinds of luck. There's what I call simple luck, 
which is sort of like what happens when I roll a six-sided die. It's a truly random event, at least from our perspective. You know, and it's not a complicated thing. There aren't a lot of sort of factors leading up to what's going to turn up on the upside of the die. I just roll it. It's like pretty random. Something comes up. It's either a one, two, three, four, five, or six. It's what I call simple luck. Is this going to roll into um, Chad Allen's guide for simple gambling systems? (laughs) No, Uh, definitely not. Um, Mostly because I've never had the mental acuity to like uh, master any kind of system for gambling, including the most rudimentary tactics for winning at blackjack. So in addition to simple luck, there's what I think of as complex luck. And complex luck is sort of luck that is um, a function of, of many more complicated factors. So I think the most straightforward example of what I think of as complex luck is where you're born. You know, so this is much more complicated in terms of its antecedent circumstances than what happens when you roll a die. Like where you are born is a function of where your parents were born and where their parents were born um, and all kinds of like geopolitical factors. And, you know, if you're if you're born into uh, one socioeconomic class or another or if you're born in one country or another, you can have massive uh, a massive impact on how your life plays out. And so if luck in the sense that you have no control over it in the same way that you have no control over what shows up on the six-sided die, but it's much more complicated in terms of its antecedent circumstances. It's more complicated in its origin or its effect, or both? Uh, I would say both. I mean, you might be able to imagine some circumstances in which the outcome of your dice roll has some pretty dramatic downstream effects on your on your life, but... Um, I think in general, like the overall sort of like uh, antecedents and consequences of complex luck are more manifold than the than the than the drivers and outcomes of simple luck, generally speaking. And the third and the third is, is it dumb luck? No, the third is false luck, which is this whole category of things that we like to think of as being driven by luck, but which are actually driven by our decisions. And these may also be fairly complex in terms of the circumstances that give rise to specific situations in which we find ourselves. But unlike what I call true complex luck, they're in part driven by our decisions. So we might say something like, Oh, you know, there was a a terrible tragedy, a a plane crash um, or a hurricane or an earthquake. And I was so lucky that I decided not to get on that plane that day, um, because if I had been on that plane, then I, you know, would have been a victim of that terrible tragedy. And I think that that's not really luck because it's a function of decisions that you made and events that you were a direct participant in and actually caused you influence the 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 direction of events by making decisions and so it's not really luck that you weren't on that plane 
And one of the reasons I think this distinction is important is because people often attribute success or failure to this kind of false luck. And I, and I do think there's an important distinction here between false luck and what I'm calling complex luck, because certainly your lot in life can be a function of true complex luck in in the sense that your what what happens to you can be a function of complicated things that gave rise to your sort of place in the world that you had no control over but what i think of as false luck are things that people say that i was lucky that this happened to me or it was unlucky that it happened to that person um and, and those things are actually um you know, you're actually a full participant in how those things played out. So people, you know, often say things like, oh, like so-and-so was, you know, successful in their career, or successful in starting this company because they got lucky. Like they were in the right place at the right time, or they were lucky to have met this person who connected to them, them to this other person. And I think that's actually like a counterproductive way of looking at the world um, because not only does it, it sort of like undermines our free agency by assigning sort of both negative and positive things that happen to us to these sort of like outside influences that are beyond our control. When in reality, I think that in a lot of ways, like how successful we are in our endeavors or projects is mostly a function of of how we put ourselves in the right place at the right time um, or how we make decisions that um, are not, you know, sort of beneficial to ourselves in the long run. So those are the three kinds of luck from my perspective, simple luck, complex luck, and false luck. And I don't know if that answers Joey's question. Maybe it answers the, what is it we call luck part of his question? Well, he says, um, is there such a thing as luck? Which I think you're saying yes, because you've defined yeah, three different right. types I'm of also it. also answering that. And what is question. it that we yeah. call luck? And you've said, well, here's these three things that we call luck. Luck is a thing that has three different subcategories. I would say no to the first question, which renders the second one moot. Yeah. And I would say that Bill Gates had no action or no free will or nothing to do with the fact that his mom and a bunch of the other moms in his well-to-do school bought him a supercomputer when there were only other three universities in the country that had supercomputers. Like, that's not luck. That's not anything to do with Bill Gates' decision-making. You know my point of view on this. That's determinism. You know, like if you believe in determinism, then luck doesn't exist. Well, yeah, you're saying a couple of different things, though, I think. Like if you believe in determinism, then yeah, like luck doesn't exist. But like, um, you know, for a moment, like let's just talk about, you know, sort of like the world as we sort of perceive it in our everyday lives. I think that the Bill Gates example is actually a really great example because the fact that he was born into this sort of you know, special set of circumstances, as you mentioned, where he had access to resources that other people didn't have access to. That is what I think I would call complex luck. Like he's, he's, you know, he's given a sort of like relatively high order sort of like well-structured set of circumstances upon which to build a platform for his future success. And he, 
you know, he did nothing to bring about that state of affairs. However, I would actually say that Bill Gates' success is probably a combination uh, of of complex luck and what we often refer to as false luck, which I would, you know, call like Bill Gates' ambition and hard work and vision. So he couldn't have been successful without the complex luck that led to his... Owning a supercomputer at the age of 12. Right. But... I think it's also unfair to say that, oh, well, anyone who had been, who had had a supercomputer at age 12, like, would have turned out to be Bill Gates. I think that, you know, Bill Gates also made some decisions and had some ambitions that resulted in his success. And if we say, if we were to say, oh, well, you know, Bill Gates is only successful because he had access to these resources, I mean, then I think that, like, completely you can extend that to sort of anyone and it completely undermines uh, our ability to believe that people are successful because of decisions that they make and work that they do and hard decisions and, you know, hard choices that they make. Right. So I, I I think there's a little bit of both in Bill Gates case. I think there's, you know, some complex luck in terms of the circumstances that, you know, he was born into and there's some, there's some what I think a lot of people would call luck and I would call false luck, which is his, you know, his hard work and ambition. Yeah. I, I mean, I, in general, I think that I, having just heard them, accept your three definitions of luck if you also accept free will, which I don't. So luck doesn't exist. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, that's true. Are we voting go on determinism, this? I vote no. Chad uh, eh, votes yes. Mark? May I also suggest a fourth type of luck, which uh, I would like to give the title of Irish, the Irish luck, which is mostly <laughs> alcohol-based. Uh, you're from Ireland, right? <laughs> I'm not even going to uh, 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 benefit that with uh, an Irish accent. Wow. Okay. Please direct all... Irish-based inquiries and <laughs> <laughs> objections to at M. Sanders. Sorry, Irish listeners. Beautiful pine furniture. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I feel like that was a very long treatise on my particular uh, view of luck, and we should probably stop talking now. See you in Vegas, Chad. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you have a minute, we'd love it if you left us a review in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast platform you use. If you want to be part of the show, you can find us online at you've got it all wrong.net. Send us your questions and feedback to questions at you've got it all wrong.net. Search for You've Got It All Wrong on Facebook and like our page. And you can follow us on Twitter. The show is at All Wrong Podcast. I'm at Paco Allen. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at M. Sanders.
Indiana Jones. Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? Now, I need that piece your father had. I learned to hate you in the last 10 years. Look, I did what I did. I don't expect you to be happy about it. But maybe it can do us both some good. 